coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The AstraZeneca vaccine arrives, but only for those under 65. Clang, clang, clang goes the LRT and the heads of Hamiltonians. The city of Hamilton has started to poke you. It's coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Since Mr. Potato Head isn't Mr. anymore, do I have to be Scott's son? Isn't that oppressive? Not to mention the child labor here. I'm calling the cops. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Sounds like his closet. I think two or three days ago, he did it from the backyard. <laughs> he went out in the backyard uh, because uh, I guess his sister was still sleeping and he didn't want to wake her uh, at 8 o'clock or 8.30 in the morning, whatever time it was. So he went out and woke up the neighborhood. Uh, there you go. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine. Uh, is back at the station, keeping week number 51 of the Scott Thompson Home Show between the rails. Feel free to jump into the show that Jordan Armanese has so delicately produced. All right, uh, lots to talk about in regard to vaccination, especially with uh, Canada to receive the first shipments of AstraZeneca uh, today. And uh, there's some issues with uh, how long these will last and also the whole 65 plus. Here's uh, Abigail Beeman from Global News. Today, we are expecting the first shipments of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, we heard yesterday from the procurement minister that those vaccines, as of yesterday, were on their way from India, expected to arrive today. We are getting 500,000 doses in that first shipment of the AstraZeneca vaccine. And so combined with the Pfizer doses we're getting this week, that puts us at close to a million for the week, which is the largest number of vaccines so far. There's been this advice not to give the AstraZeneca vaccine to those 65 and older. So far, we're hearing that provinces will be following the NACI guidelines to do that. But provinces need to come up with a, a rollout plan or specifics of that plan really fast because we also know that 300,000 of those 500,000 AstraZeneca vaccines are set to expire within 30 days. Uh, by April 2nd, those doses need to be used. So they really need to get them out into people's arms fast as soon as they get them into to their provinces. All right, that is uh, Abigail Beeman from Global News. Let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Thanks very much. Uh, as far as the logistics of uh, getting the new AstraZeneca in, uh, there, there seems to be uh, a little bit of confusion. Uh, uh, National Advisory Council suggesting not for 65 plus. Uh, Health Canada, and with their research, uh, like other parts of the world, uh, is saying that it's okay for 65 plus. I understand this is not a safety issue. This is an issue with there just isn't the research there at this point. Uh, what are your thoughts on on this shipment that, uh, of AstraZeneca that it, that will arrive today? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a, a you know great to be able to have another option in, in the mix of uh, you know different vaccines. So so I think it's really great to have have that coming in and, you know, as much as we can get, I think is, is going to be really great. Um, you know, I think, as you said, the uh, National uh, Advisory Committee for Immunisation at this stage has said that they don't think it should be used for uh, 65 and overs, uh, but, but that's based on, you know, their current uh, sort of reading of the, of the research on, on effectiveness in, in that age group. But, uh, you know, my sense is that... Uh, you know, there there are studies. There's studies come out uh, just recently in the last day or so from uh, the UK and uh, the US are also doing uh, clinical trials, you know, specifically for uh, older age groups. And so, my sense is that uh, you know, pretty soon we'll, you know, within the ne- next few weeks, I'm, I'd, I'd expect that they'll probably revise that uh, that uh, you know that recommendation. And many have talked about this. We've talked about this before, Thomas. But is this about lack of research? It just isn't there at this point, or is it uh, ineffectiveness? Uh, I think it's you know it, it, if we if you if people think back to you know when the uh, when when the uh, vaccines were originally uh, uh, approved, you know one of you know that that was based on 
you know, three phases of, of various clinical trials. And, and those clinical trials only have a, you know, certain number of people in them. And so, and at the time, you know, the, you know, the government and the various uh, approval bodies said, well, you know, they, they, these look like they're effective, but, you know, we, they haven't had enough of, you know, uh, trials in, in different age groups. And there's, there's going to be a whole range of uh, things that we don't know. And so, so now that, you know, now we've had, you know, three months or, or more of, uh, of, uh, you know, the vaccines being, being uh, administered across the world, that's given us a lot more information on, you know, what's effective uh, and, and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, what, what the, the various studies are showing is that, that they're you know, really uh, uh, saying that, yes, these, these vaccines are effective for the various age groups, even though, you know, overall, initially, they, they felt that they were, you know, the, it's, it, the evidence is showing, yes, yes, they really are effective in, in the various age groups and, and they are, you know, very safe as well. So, so that's all really good news. Um, obviously, uh, we're learning as we go. We've said that many times and, and more research is becoming available as time goes on. So, uh, not sure of effectiveness in those over 65. The issue is, uh, obviously the provinces and, and pretty much everybody were, we're doing this, uh, as far as administering the doses. It's those that are most vulnerable, the long-term care. Uh, that sort of thing, um, and and uh, and, and frontline workers, uh, essential services, that sort of thing, and and we're sort of going to go down that line, and then by age. So with this now uh, focusing on those le- under sixty-five, how do you think that's going to change distribution? Because I think most distributions are set up to do uh, obviously long-term care, and then and then citizens in order of age. Yeah, yeah, I think that, you know it definitely complicates the the distribution of the vaccine, uh, you know, for the AstraZeneca vaccine, and also, you know, just uh, you know how long it's actually sort of you know it's you know it has an expiry date, and so can you distribute it and use it in uh, in you know the populations under sixty five by by the for, for this the you know the shipment that's coming in, uh, you know, within this period of time, and so so that's that's obviously you know an, an additional. Uh, complication for for the for distribution, but I think you know sort of longer term, my sense is that uh, you know that 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 recommendation will change. I think it will will be available for everyone, and so that will that will then uh, you know be an additional uh, sort of uh, vaccine for you know for across all age groups. And so so I think it's you know it's just really my sense is it's just this you know the next few weeks uh, you know while we while they sort of distribute the the vaccine that's coming. You know, that just come in. That's just come in, and then uh, you know, w- within the next few weeks, there there'll be much more, uh, you know, further studies that they'll be able to draw on, and and you know, you know, sort of uh, review the the current recommendation. Uh, so, five hundred thousand doses of AstraZeneca arriving today. That's enough for two hundred and fifty thousand. So, sixty-five plus, um, not recommended. Those below sixty-five, who should get this? Uh, should this be healthcare, EMS, frontline workers? Well, I, yeah. Like my sense is, like I think you know, a big big uh, category of people who should be getting it are people who are in the homeless and homeless community. Uh, you know, they, yeah. they are you know really extremely vulnerable, and so. So, uh, you know, I would say whatever we can do to get uh, people in in that segment of the community, uh, you know, vaccinated at least with one with one shot, then then that's what that's also a really important thing to do as well. But uh, you know, I, I know that that hasn't been talked about as much as you know, sort of other you know, other categories of people. But but uh, I think it is important. And needs to be, Thomas, simply because of the fear of spread. It can spread very rapidly in these situations. Yeah, yeah, we, we, you know, we've uh, even, you know, some local studies have shown how that uh, uh, people in the, you know, homeless community are at much higher risks of both getting getting the disease, uh, you know, something like twenty times higher. They're like ten times higher risk of being hospitalised and like five times higher risk of dying. And so, so you know, that that really, you know, and that's just that's local evidence. And so that's really putting putting you know some some good data to the reasons why. You know, we need to be able to uh, pr- try and protect, uh, you know, uh, homeless people and people who are sort of living living on the streets because, you know, they are really vulnerable. You know, they have, 
you know they they have a you know they have a lot of underlying medical conditions uh, you know to start with uh, and they have less options in in which to try and protect themselves as well so 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 I think you know if you know that that means that it's sort of up to us to you know to to try and help protect them. Uh, you mentioned that this AstraZeneca uh, shipment comes with a shelf life. Uh, and these all have to be distributed, I believe it is, by the beginning of April. I'm not sure on that. Uh, I'll check that. Um, so why is that the case now? Do these all have a shelf life? This is the first time we've heard uh, of something like this, like you have to rush and get it out because it's it only has a certain shelf life, or is this sort of the, uh, you know, the, the back end of another shipment, so to speak? Um, well, I think, well, I think there's 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 probably multiple reasons, but but one, my, I think you know one one reason playing into this is that it's it's a different type of uh, vaccine to the other two. The you know the other two are what are called m uh, RNA vaccines, and so, yeah. so they they basically are uh, you know the latest technology that uses genetic material to sort of train our bodies on how to react to the to the virus, uh, whereas the uh, the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine is uh, is still a newer version of the old old sort of vaccine technology that is basically uh, in, in having a sort of a an, uh, a vaccine that is 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 uh, sort of not not effective, but it's 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 uh, or, or it doesn't infect us, but it but it 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 uh, it has it basically has. Uh, Sort of, it's been treated in a way to be able to also uh, ins- make our body react to uh, and create the, the proteins that are associated with with the COVID uh, virus. So, so basically, it's, it's you know it's sort of a, a different style of vaccine, and, and so, uh, but and because of that, it also means that it you know the the flip side is that it can actually be. You know, it doesn't have to be uh, transported at such such low temperatures. So, but to know, those type, to those pluses and minuses, yeah. Do those older types of vaccines, not the R, um, mRNA, mRNA, uh, so these would have a lower shelf life? Would that be accurate? Because uh, yeah, we haven't really heard anything. Yeah, we haven't yeah. really heard much about shelf life since this yeah, whole discussion yeah, started. Yeah. So, so like uh, you know, all the you know, sort of the uh, you know, vaccines are you know, sort of a. You know, if you think about it as a sort of a biological material, and uh, you know, just like a you know, food products have uh, expiry dates. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- these these do as well, and, and particularly the uh, the ones that are using a a uh, sort of a, a what they call a vector virus as as the transport medium. Right. Uh, lots of chatter, especially in the last uh, day or two, maybe three, uh, and prior to this, maybe a few weeks ago, about that second dose. We're seeing a lot of change of heart um, in uh, holding, not holding back the second dose and just trying to flood and get as many people vaccinated uh, as we possibly can. Obviously, if we had a, an ample supply, that would not be uh, the case. We wouldn't be making those decisions. That's why they're not doing it in the United States. They have uh, uh, obviously, an ample supply. Your thoughts on on the change of heart with uh, BC saying now they're going to wait up to four months to put in uh, the second dose, Quebec three, uh, and uh, you know, other than the uh, the new question now, we're, are we going to see a change of heart from Health Canada on this? Will we hear different information from Health Canada regarding uh, process here? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think it, for me, I think it comes down to. Uh, you know what we're what we're facing, or what what the potential that we're facing in regard to the the new new variants and and the potential for them to be you know and the, what we're seeing is that the, you know they're, they're becoming more and more dominant in in the uh, community, and because they are you know they spread more easily. Uh, if if we look if we look to the UK and other countries where and particularly for the UK strain uh, variant, uh, you know if we look at their experience. You know that would indicate that we we have to be prepared for a surge, and so one of the ways to you know, and if if there was a surge, that would really overwhelm the uh, the healthcare system, uh, and so you know one way to try and stop that the healthcare system being overwhelmed is by uh, spreading out the, uh, the the first dose to as as many people as possible, so that people uh, have a you know more immunity, and so don't get as sick, and so then. Don't need to go to hospital. So, so I think that that's sort of one, you know, from a public health perspective, that's that's a big big consideration. 
Um, are we? Do you think we'll hear anything official from the manufacturer or Health Canada on this? Uh, like I think, say the you know the manufacturer will will always say, well, you know, we, you know, this has been designed and tested to to be most right. effective, you know, within you know, with two doses and doses at a certain time point apart. Uh, you know, I think that they would sort of stand by that, but but I think. You know, as as you know, the, like like you you said before, you know, it, it, we're learning as we're going. It's it's sort of like a worldwide worldwide experiment uh, that we're all participating in, and so uh, you know that we have to sort of say, well, you know, what what's the best thing to do at this time uh, based on the evidence that we have and 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 the uh, and the threats that we're facing, and so so I think you know it's it's a sort of a bit of a moving feast, and uh, yeah, but from an actual Sort of a use perspective and approval perspective, I think that they'll probably, you know, sort of stay stay on. You know, you should have the two two doses. Thomas Tenkate with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, talking about uh, Canada receiving its first shipment of AstraZeneca vaccine. Thomas, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye bye. Good afternoon, I'm Tad Michaels. Niagara police have charged two people on several counts of drug possession and also this. In December, investigators are looking into a B&E at North Catherine's storage unit that contains several stolen items. Detective linked a Kijiji ad to the case. Yesterday, they were able to track down a man and woman believed to be involved. They searched the car they were in and seized over uh, $7,500 worth of meth, $3,000 worth of fentanyl, a large amount of cash, and the aforementioned accordion. He snapped. It's the COVID Old snap. Lady of Spain, We've been talking about the COVID snap for months now, and we. Ted will now be featured on his own health and wellness show. <laughs> the day that Ted heard the accordion on the air and just took him back to some other world, some other utopian life, where there was lots of uh, coffee and cabbage rolls. Oh, jeez. And the Schme- <laughs> See the, the dogs Schmen- are even howling. The Schmengi brothers. Oh, oh my! Oh, is, is someone is someone gassing the studio in there? Is is the air ventilation? Is it all checked? Oh. I reach an email. Heard your promo blaring another dog whistle for the anti-Trudeau crowd while listening to Mr. Kelly, and I'm reminded again why I don't listen to your show. P.S. The public did consider the black face when they voted for Mr. Trudeau. Unless you're appointing yourself supreme ruler, that's how it works. Regards, Bill. It's amazing how liberals will just blow off the black face. And we talked about this yesterday because we had Alyssa Freeman PR consultant on and we were talking about uh, the Mr. Potato Head and the Dr. Seuss thing and the whole whatever. And here we are uh, talking about Dr. Seuss, but we don't talk about Dr. Trudeau. Yeah, it just, it, it amazes me. And we brought that up. And boy, this is a sore spot for the liberals because that's the last thing they want to be reminded of is the hypocrisy that exists with their supreme ruler. All right, it is uh, 109. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erska back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation the way Bill has. It's a free radio show. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, what else we got? Oh, Facebook and Twitter. You'll find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you. And oddly enough, uh, the choice we have for leaders in the world, it's between you're either a Trump or you're a potato head. There's no center anymore. You're either a Trump or you're a potato head. Where Where's the civility here? All right. I know where to find it, too. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe. Uh, it's probably a really good time for him. Michael Tobe, of course, former speech writer for Stephen Harper, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael Thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. <laughs> I am. Although I was going to say, my God, after all those segues, are you doing well? Jeez. I know. What a crap show this has turned out to be. Eh? I mean, I my goodness. Of, I was seeing Krusty the Clown going, what the hell was that? That was <laughs> wild, what you just did. <laughs> 
Oh, man. You know what? Uh, I mean, I got an email from somebody, and this was a conversation we were having yesterday. But since the gentleman brought it up, I'll gladly talk about it again. Uh, and we were talking about the whole situation and counterculture, and you know, I don't want to get back into that debate again, but we were, uh, you know, obviously talking about the Dr. Seuss and the potato head and yeah. such. And, and you know, again, I, you know, I said to my guest, you know, it's amazing we continually talk about this, but... You know, this fell off uh, the prime minister's back like water off a duck's back. And no one seems to care about this, yet they get up in arms about everything else. Yeah, no, you're right. And I I don't get that myself exactly at all. The whole thing with Dr. Seuss yesterday, and obviously, I, I, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't hear your show and I didn't hear what your guest said. Um, It was frustrating to me, especially someone who grew up reading Dr. Seuss. I have many of the books. I've read them to my son. He enjoyed them and didn't worry about the implications or time period sensitive or time related and sensitive issues that are involved with it. Yeah, because there's no doubt, obviously, Dr. Seuss, like a lot of things that was written many decades ago, or in some cases, centuries ago, it was based on the time period. So obviously, there were different attitudes about race, religion, gender, etc. But that's just part of the historical tradition. That's just part of reading great works of children's literature, which, quite frankly, Theodore Geisel or Dr. Seuss has been regarded for for decades. People even went back and found videos of, you know, huge amounts of world leaders, including Barack Obama about five, six years ago, saying that, you know, if you want to really define the world, or if you want to understand an element of the world, Dr. Seuss explains a lot of different things. But sure, Dr. Seuss is imperfect. Dr. Seuss was insensitive. Dr. Seuss certainly treated you know, races, religions, and other things in a different fashion than he would have if he were alive today. But you're right. Those sorts of things trigger people. It caused Dr. Seuss Enterprise to eliminate six of the books, which is kind of ironic. In the world of cancel culture, they they cancel themselves. But we, but everything else that seems to be relevant or important seems to, like you said, just sort of float away, disappear, and we worry about these sorts of things. But on the other hand, if we don't worry about these sorts of things, how many other things are going to be canceled as well? This is now just added to the list. Uh, it's interesting, since we're talking about the Prime Minister, I was watching uh, parts of his uh, news conference this morning. It certainly sounds like he is uh, gearing up for an election. Uh, many uh, pundits have said, uh, look at uh, the timing of, of the aid that has been extended and, yeah. uh, and announced today that that would be extended. Uh, aid to businesses would be extended until mm-hmm. June. Um, wants to uh, spend more on research and development and stimulating vaccine production. Yeah. in Canada, oddly enough. I mean, this certainly sounds like a, a prime minister who's gearing up for an election. You know, sort of, but I mean, in the same sense, you know, a lot of the opposition parties and others voted unanimously saying that they don't want another federal election. I can't also believe that a lot of liberals, even in that caucus, are necessarily clamoring or chomping at the bit to have an election. After all the trouble that they've had with the distribution of vaccines, which, yes, there's obviously lots of fingers being pointed, but a large chunk of them have to be pointed at Ottawa, you know, who is in charge of purchasing the nearly uh, 400 million doses, 398 million in all, and distributing them to the provinces. So when people start blaming the provinces, yes, they obviously have to share a little piece of the blame, but it's hard to distribute a vaccine when you don't have the supply, because the supply is the only way you can distribute it to the various cities, towns, villages, etc., so from that alone, and then when you sort of go back to other things, including one thing which I did gather from your opening was that, you know, the whole discussion of blackface with Justin Trudeau, which he was able to sweep away, which mostly world leaders couldn't have during the 2019 federal election. And just a lot of mistakes that this prime minister's made, including two trips to the ethics commissioner. And at some point when things settle down, probably a third one based on We Charity, when you put all of them together you wouldn't think that someone in that position would want to run out to the polls, especially when a lot of people have said that although provincial elections in New Brunswick, British Columbia, and other places were run properly, not perfectly, but pretty smoothly, all things considered, we don't really need a federal election at this point. Now, again, if they want, if the federal liberals opt to drop the writ, they'll do so. But it seems like there's a lot working against them And when the prime minister's personal popularity has dropped, the polls seem to show right now roughly about a four or five, six point gap 
between the Liberals and the opposition Tories, which could easily flip, you know, in a matter of weeks, depending on what happens, I wouldn't think they should be jumping at that chance. But you're right, some of the things they seem to be doing right now, at least if nothing else, suggest that they're considering the possibility. Whether they do it or not, we'll see. Is there a sweet spot in the second quarter? So after the mass amounts of vaccinations start to approve, starts to improve, as soon as uh, people start to realize that their friends or their neighbors or their parents are getting yeah. vaccinated, is there a sweet spot behind that yet in front of when all the bills come in for all of this? Hmm. Well, I think they believe that there's certainly a sweet spot, no question of that. They'll obviously want to focus on the positive rather than negative, you know, which is obvious, and state that, you know, yeah, we had some bumps in the road, but look, we met targets, we, you know, people are getting vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that a lot of Canadians, no matter what they are on the ideological spectrum, or even if they have a political ideology, I think they have to also keep in mind that there were a period of a couple of months where we had problems getting supply from Pfizer, Moderna, the fact that we couldn't get AstraZeneca passed here, Johnson & Johnson hasn't been passed here, the fact that the Canadian government spent a lot of time dealing with a Chinese vaccine company that was little-known, Cancino, which in the end ultimately had to stop production last August because it completely failed, which forced the federal government to scramble around to sign other contracts. Aside from this nonsense, Scott, that they're coming out saying that, oh, well, Canada you know, worked hard to sign all these contracts and we did it early, no, you didn't. You put your lot in with a company that you shouldn't have in a country that, we're, that we currently have icy relations with for a variety of reasons, including Huawei, the two Michaels and the death camps, etc. It's just it's so bad when you put all these things together. You know, it makes you wonder. It really makes you wonder about this prime minister. It basically makes you wonder about these his senior advisors. You make it, it makes you wonder about his caucus. And whether they're really looking at the whole picture and realizing that even if it's sunny now or the sunny ways that the prime minister likes to talk about so much, it may be sunny now, but it was pretty dark and gloomy even just a few days ago. I wouldn't start trying to think that you can run away from a problem that you had when during those two months, more people got sick from COVID-19 and some people unnecessarily died just because now all of a sudden you're catching up, you'll have millions of vaccines, and then you'll meet targets. You can't disassociate or you can't not include those two months as part of the puzzle. And for that alone, you would think his mandarins would want to actually keep away from calling another federal election rather than jumping into it. Has Aaron O'Toole, conservative leader, established himself, or is it going to take an election to do that? You know, it's always hard. I mean, it always takes one to two elections for any political leader, no matter the ideological stripe, stripe to, um, to basically make a name for himself or herself, to go out there to show voters or just average Canadians that he, she can actually represent the country and has good ideas and good policies that will help overall, our economy, politics, cultural policy, foreign relations, etc. Aaron O'Toole has obviously only been leader for a few months, so he hasn't fully established himself yet. There's no doubt if you look at recent polls and things that he is definitely struggling to some degree, and part of that can be attributed to the fact that while elements of his policies have come out, there are other things that are leaking out, such as this discussion, which you may have already had on the radio today, that he's possibly considering put implementing a carbon tax. That's my next question for you. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, which would drive conservative activists nuts, would drive conservative voters and donors nuts, and would actually mean that a significant chunk of conservative voters that would normally be in his camp might either not vote for him or basically wait till the very last minute to see if it's worthwhile, because that's just not an idea that resonates with small-c conservative Canadians, and it doesn't resonate with different provinces around the country. I just think that Aaron O'Toole, unfortunately, has not completely defined himself yet as a leader. I wouldn't have expected fully at this point, but I think I, I would have assumed that more of his concepts and ideas would be out there right now. Again, this can be fixed. It can be easily rectified, but he's got to start doing it.
So where will the conservatives go on on the carbon tax, do you think? Obviously, uh, they're reading information that that's Canadians aren't are fine with it. I'll, I'll, I'll use that word. Uh, you know, they, they don't seem to be as opposed to it uh, as, as as some may think. So where would they land on this? I don't know. I certainly would not go near it. And again, that's obviously because I'm, you know, I have a certain ideological leading and I'm partisan. It's not something that I would want to basically run a campaign on. And conservatives who have tried to either promote some or all the virtues of a carbon tax, and we can think of former, for example, former Ontario PC leader Patrick Brown, who's now the mayor of Brampton, as being one of those examples, it usually backfires to some degree because although people might go along with it in principle, they would hope that the leader wouldn't implement it once he or she gets into office because it just doesn't make sense to the base. And I agree, obviously, I'm not going to make the, the argument that the that Canada's conservative base necessarily thinks the same way as the Canadian people do. There are differences of opinion. At the same time, I don't think a lot of people who are either on the right side of the political spectrum or regard themselves as business liberals or at least fiscally thinking individuals, which can, you know, run the gamut. I don't think a lot of people would actually necessarily want to have a carbon tax as part of their policy model. And yes, I don't disagree that some Canadians like it. Obviously, they do. But I think there's more than enough resentment of the issue, maybe a little less so in Ontario, but certainly more so in Western Canada. I just don't know if Aaron O'Toole is going to go near it. So I don't doubt it's been discussed. I don't doubt there's been a reason it's been leaked out, because obviously some conservatives are frustrated. But I don't think he's ultimately going to go for something like that. But instead, we'll look at ways to improve, excuse me, to to improve the climate change or just improve the environment by using both state-run and private models to help it along. I just don't think following Justin Trudeau's lead on a carbon tax, even if it's somewhat different, is the right way to go. So what should conservative policy be on climate change? Because clearly uh, it's perceived as a weak point for them. So uh, what sure. should what what should conservative climate change policy be? I've been saying it a million times in my life, most conservatives who do the same, do what I do say the same thing. It's not a big secret. Conservatives are always very weak on the environment. We are. It doesn't mean we don't understand it. It doesn't mean we have an interest in it. It's just not something we're necessarily identified with. Much the same way that when the NDP talks about, for example, capitalism, you don't necessarily intertwine these two concepts. It doesn't mean that New Democrats can't talk about it. They're just not associated with it. But in terms of climate change, I mean, the big issue that we have, obviously, as conservatives is we recognize that climate change exists. We recognize that the environment is important to Canadians. We recognize that they want policies put in place or instituted, but we have to be careful how we balance it out because naturally the people who support the the conservative party or people who would be naturally inclined to vote conservative have a very different idea and very different principle. I sort of said it in my previous answer to you, which is that you have to kind of balance out government-run programs, and private enterprise. That is usually the proper balance that will at least, if nothing else, ensure that Canadian conservatives or small-c conservative individuals or people who just like you know, market-oriented ideas will at least understand that we're trying to think properly on that issue, which would mean that you're pulling from both sides. It's like a triple P, a, a public-private partnership. It's the same concept as that. So I think if you can actually establish the interests of private investors or the private enterprise to help in this process with novel ideas and concepts and policies, but ensure that conservatives obviously believe the government has a role to play in climate change, just not as much as, say, what Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are espousing right now, I think that's the sweet spot, so to speak, that could actually work for them. But obviously what I'm talking about are very much in semantics. They need actually hard policies right up front to ensure that people understand that they know what they're talking about when it comes to, you know, tackling the environment, building pipelines, uh, ensuring that, you know, our air is clean, our water is clean, etc. But that both government and the private sector have both important roles to play to ensure that the environment gets better and continues to improve and that we can all have 
you know, clean air, clean water, and healthy living, etc. Uh, we were initially going to talk about U.S. politics, Michael, but somehow you led me astray again. Uh, <laughs> what the hell was that? I know, exactly. So let me ask you one question. Um, Biden sure. said uh, this week that um, he hopes to have all American adults vaccinated by May. Yeah. Uh, the prime minister talking about September. Uh, yeah. And Biden said that they would share once they were complete. So does that mean uh, come May we will see uh, the U.S. open their, their doors and, and push us uh, to vaccination as well once they are complete? Well, let's put it this way. I mean, although the U.S. obviously had a very rocky path last year, um, by the tail end of Donald Trump's presidency, things were moving along with the vaccines. And now with Joe Biden as president, they seem to be moving along quite decently to the point where a lot of Americans, you know, I think what did I recently see, 150,000 plus Americans are getting vaccinated a day. Hmm. I mean, can you imagine if numbers like that were happening in Canada, Scott? Yeah, we'd be it'd open. It'd be euphoria. Yeah. yeah. So do I believe the U.S. will be fully vaccinated by May? Um. At the rate things are going, they have a very good chance at it. Certainly, you would think May, June, early July, if nothing else. But if their target is the end of May, I think that's fantastic. And I think a lot of Americans, after all the suffering they've had, and more than half a million million Americans have passed away already from COVID-19, that's exactly what they want to hear. You know, but unfortunately for Canada, you know, I mean, naturally, we'll look at that and think, well, that's great for our neighbors. But at the same time, we are nowhere near that point. And again, to not to continue to be a broken record, but to trail back to what we were talking about earlier, this is one of the reasons why an early federal election doesn't make a lot of sense. When you're hearing numbers that the larger United States, which struggled, will be fully vaccinated by May, or at least that's what they're estimating, while as a middle power like Canada, which should be further ahead, is saying that hopefully everything will be done by September, that's a huge imbalance. And I think if nothing else, right there and then, that should have an issue, you know, that should strategically show the Liberals that this is not the right way to go about it in terms of holding an early election call. Or if they really plan to do so, they better find a way now to catch up the AstraZeneca, Johnson Johnson, combined with Pfizer, Moderna, and other, and other drugs. Even what Brian Pallister is looking at, Providence Therapeutics, for example, if you can put all those together and speed things along and get Canada vaccinated more quickly, then you can start thinking along those levels. But right now, America is way ahead of us in many different ways, and unfortunately as well with vaccination distribution. Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, thank you for the time as always. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. When you hear the Mr. Potato Head debate, it's no wonder some are flocking to the Donald Trumps of the world, so said a PR expert on my show. Those seem to be the only two types of leadership we have nowadays. Potato Heads on the left and Trumps on the right. In case you didn't hear, Hasbro has decided to drop the word Mr. from Mr. Potato Head in favor of simply Potato Head. Although after backlash, the toy maker confirmed they are still keeping the characters of Mr. and Mrs. It just won't be called Mr. Potato Head. Whatever that means. Tomato? Tomato? And where does this leave Mr. Dress Up? Or Mr. Rogers? Or even Captain Kangaroo? How much are they paying these head potatoes or other vegetables to come up with these decisions? And speaking of vegetables, isn't potato excluding them? I'm tired of both the left and the right. In their mad dash for the fringes, they have both neglected the space most Canadians occupy. The center. Hello? Anybody here? I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Federal Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna tweeting out that Hamilton LRT is exactly the kind of ambitious project her government is focused on, adding she's working with partners to make it a reality. One of the partners is Leuna, and President Joe Mancinelli says negotiations have been going well. We've been talking with the feds, and the feds are prepared, speaking with Minister McKenna, Minister of Infrastructure, are prepared to put 1.3. In fact, Minister McKenna said, 
that, you know, she'd be willing to put even a little more than that, but wants the province to match whatever she puts in as well. That would leave about $900 million for the private sector to come up with. And Mancinelli says another big hurdle is the city. There's pushback over the ongoing operating costs. He says that could be resolved in a couple of ways. Either the province helping out, as it does with other municipalities, or tapping into the increased tax base from development along the McMaster to Eastgate corridor. Shona Thompson, 900 CHML News. There you go. <laughs> You're now up to date, I think. Let's bring in Larry Deany, former mayor of Hamilton. He is with us now. Larry, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott, and I hope uh, you are also doing well. You sound in very fine form. Well, you know, we're faking it uh, and have been pretty much for the whole year, Larry. (laughs) We're all in the same shape. I hear you, man. I hear you. So your thoughts on where we are now, uh, it it sounds like there's some sort of workings going on uh, behind the scene, unbeknownst to council, though. They don't seem to be in this loop at this point. Well, and that's the key problem, I think, uh, right now. Uh, So, um, and, you know, I have no inside um, knowledge of... uh, of what uh, negotiations or discussions are going on other than what's been reported in the press. Uh, but I'm encouraged by that. And I'm encouraged that uh, Joe Mancinelli of Liuna and Liuna, with its uh, considerable heft, and not only in terms of financial power um, through the investments that it makes, uh, but also the relationship, I think, that uh, Mr. Mancinelli has been able to um, to, to um, um, covet with both uh, the, the province and the feds stands us as a city in good stead. And they're willing to not only negotiate, but be third-party non-governmental um, uh, partners in making sure that this LRT is built. And that's all great. What concerns me uh, is the fact that the, um, you know, we, we just heard uh, some of the uh, commentary uh, in the news report just uh, just now on your station. Uh, but also, if you follow the discussion that's been happening at council, council seems to be out of the loop. Both the city manager and the mayor are saying that they've asked for information from Metrolinks uh, and nothing seems to be forthcoming. So I I see that as as a huge problem because, uh, as also you can see from some of the comments being made by other councillors, they're wondering where the city is. Um, The city is going to uh, uh, have to be obviously uh, a party to uh, to this project. It is the city's project. And uh, the fact that the board of directors um, doesn't seem to know what's happening uh, is of great concern and may scuttle good progress that's being made. And I lay this entirely at the feet of uh, of the province. Um, I mean, Minister McKenna uh, has given positive uh, indication that the feds are, are in if the province is in uh, with matching dollars, which is not an unusual uh, scenario, by the way. It's a formula that's often used. Um, and Metrolinks and the province need to uh, uh, be transparent, I think, in terms of what uh, they're willing to contribute or what they expect in return and might expect the city to do. So, uh, you know, it's it's the old Hamilton story, you know, one step forward and maybe one sideways and one backwards, which really leaves <laughs> us uh, in a state of quandary. So, uh, uh it seems that Leuna is, is doing all the heavy lifting here. It seems that Leuna is doing all of the, the work trying to bring these uh, parties uh, together. Um, why do you think council is kind of left out of this? Is it got anything to do with their dis- lack of decisiveness in the past? Well, I, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled by that. Um, Obviously, uh, the people at Queen's Park uh, understand and know Council's role in this project and the history of this project. Um, the Queen's Park itself, the government there, Mr. Ford's government, has been um, on one side and the other at different times about the support of this program. Lately, they have said we support it, and here's the billion dollars. Let's see if we can make this work. Um, but I'm, I'm puzzled as to why someone... Um, in the province, uh, hasn't taken the leadership to say, look, let's bring all of these parties together. Let's sit down around the same table and let's have a frank discussion. And rather than sending emissaries, by the way, they should be sending people who have some decision-making capabilities to see if we can put this on, on the rails. I know, I know. I mean, I haven't spoken to the mayor about this 
but I know he would be there in a heartbeat. Sounds like the city manager wants to be there because she's asking for information. Um, and uh, and Leona uh, can be involved in that because it seems as if they will be a critical partner. Um, they uh, obviously are looking for a return on their investment. They're not doing this just out of civic pride. Um, and I think their members, if, if uh, pension money is going to be used, would expect no less that an investment be made and there be a fair return on that investment. So all of the ingredients are there, I think, for making this work. Uh, it, but it takes the political will and the organizational ability of somebody to say, okay, let's let's put this group together and let's see where we are and let's be clear about where we want to go. Let's have some firm commitments and then let's implement uh, if we can reach agreement on those commitments. I think council would react positively to that. Um, you know, council being council will, will have its debates and sometimes those will sound fractious and people will be on that side or this side uh, based on their own history and their own feelings about the project. But I think if, if they had a tangible plan in front of them, given that the plan seems to have changed to talk about, it's better than, than making comments without information, which is what they're doing now. And that's not fair to them. It's not fair to the city. And it's absolutely not fair to the, uh, to the project that uh, could be so... Um, city changing um, if it were to go on. You know, all that stuff that you were talking about, Larry, about bringing the people together and, and planning, I think all of that is going on. I think it's just going on without city council. I, you know, because clearly, clearly this is moving uh, forward. Leuna is all over it. They're the parties that have brought the two together. We're finding new information out today about, uh, obviously, they're going, uh, the feds are in for the 1.3, possibly even more. They uh, want the province to match that. So this is moving forward. It's just the council's been kept out of it uh, for whatever reason. Uh, my guess is, is because, <laughs> you know, they're not going to get it until the, all the, doc, all the uh, ducks are in a row, all the, T's are crossed and the I's are dotted because we know what happens when it doesn't. I mean, it just ends up in a in a in a crap show, for lack of a better phrase. So it sounds like that yeah. is going no, on. I, I, it sounds I, I, like that is all going on. It's just the councils. They're keeping council out of it for obvious reasons. Well, I, I hear what you're saying, and and maybe there's some merit, obviously, to uh, to being uh, skeptical about uh, uh, whether this council or any council, quite frankly. Uh, could be kept in line, given that they see themselves and and indeed are uh, the uh, the managers of this municipality, and they have uh, they have the power and and the wherewithal uh, to make decisions on behalf of all of us. But I would maintain this, though, Scott, that if council is not involved, things may be happening, but um, they are not really happening uh, with with any degree of of success. Because council needs to be brought in, at least the leadership, and then they they can decide internally how to disseminate that information. But certainly the mayor, the city manager, uh, would be key people to be to to be at the table. Uh, because let's face it, uh, decisions can be made uh, by other levels of government and third party private uh, interests such as Leuna. Uh, but unless the city's on board, it's not going to be accepted. Unless, of course, all of these parties say, you know what, we're going to do this project. It's not going to cost the city anything. We're just going to, you know, give you a turnkey uh, product at the end of it, and it's not going to cost the taxpayers a penny. Uh, I think council would say, yeah, we we're in for that. But that is not like... I don't know. I don't know, Larry. That's the way this whole thing started, and it still still turned into a crap show. Like, honestly, I I think, of course, I think, of course, of course, council is going to be brought into the the discussion. It's a Hamilton LRT. It's in the city of Hamilton. And and whether it's run by this, that, or the other person, it's, of course, Hamilton will be brought into the discussion. But but I'm thinking, uh, up to this point, has anything that city council has done in regard to the 
LRT been an asset to this discussion? And like you well, said, it's one step forward, two steps back. So I think what's going to happen is they're going to pre- be presented something with all the T's crossed and the dies dotted, dies eyes dotted, and then they're going to have a choice to make. But but again, I don't see what they possibly bring to the discussion at this point, other than more complication and around and around and around and around we go. So uh, you know, I I think I think it's obvious why council is not included at this point. Don't you think, Larry? No, no, not really. I, I don't think it's obvious at all. And, and again, I don't disagree with 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 the skepticism uh, that there may be um, around, you know, the, some of the discussions that council's uh, council has had over the years. Um, but but I would remind uh, everyone listening to this of, of this pure fact. Set aside the rhetoric, set aside the discussion, set aside the fact that some people have been lukewarm, uh, set aside the fact that they've come on board only because uh, of the $1 billion uh, um, a gift from the province. Set all that aside. When it came time to vote on this project, council voted to implement the project. They, constru- they, they, they put together a team, an LRT team made up of staff that was working daily to implement the plan. And and uh, in spite of the discussions that were happening, that team was moving forward. Properties have been purchased. Uh, designs have been made. Communications to the to the residents have gone forward. Lots of public relations. Uh, they hired people to knock on doors even uh, to ask people along the route uh, how they felt or answer their questions. So all of that was moving this project forward until Mr. Ford and uh, Caroline Mulrooney, the then minister uh, responsible, came to town and said, we're pulling the plug on this. And why would they do that, Larry? Because somehow they were convinced that the majority of the people in Hamilton didn't want this thing. And despite everything that you just said, Larry, still council kept kicking and kicking and kicking and kicking at this plan to the point where Premier Wynne on my show was laughing at council saying, it's coming, it's a, it's a go, this has already been decided. So, I mean, it's great to sit there and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But let's be honest, even though all of that was done, we still had many councillors who were doing everything they could to derail this, so much so that the Premier spoke about it at the time, and I'm guessing that weighed in heavily on the thought that Ford thought he could come down here and cancel the whole thing and no one would give a damn. Where does that come from, Larry? That comes from a city that doesn't know which way is up. Well, so, so again, again, let's, let's not confuse the, the sometimes contradictory and passionate debates around a council table or at Queen's Park or in the federal parliament with direction on behalf of the government. The direction on the behalf of the government was pretty clear. The project was being implemented. Um, Mr. Ford uh, even said, and he changed his mind a few times after the election, which was all about LRT, if you remember. I'm He's not changing that. his mind, Larry. He's listening to people. Well, so so <laughs> so I don't know which people he was listening to because the residents of the city overwhelmingly voted for the candidate for mayor who was in who was in favor of this project. And even Mr. Ford said, "Well, I guess if the citizens want that project." It's going to happen. And then they pull the plug and they pull the plug maybe for some good reasons, although there's some dispute around the, that rationale as well in terms of the, the eventual cost, which is going to be more than a billion, but not the 5.2 billion lifetime cost that they, they, they were suggesting. But that more to the point and more the reason that really a mature government and governments, all of them, need to sit down and, and with open books and, and uh, uh, you know, transparent motives, put all the cards on the table and make a decision to move this forward. Otherwise, it's going to be this blame game that's going on. Whose fault is it? It's a hot potato. Let's shift it over to that side or let's put it over to that side. Let's blame each other and nothing will be done. Remember, this is the city that took 54 years to build a, a nine-kilometer road uh, <laughs> called now called the the Red Hill Parkway, 54 years, which was a shame for this city to take that long to build something that's proved so beneficial in spite of some of the hiccups that have gone along the way. 
Um, the, the, we cannot allow this to happen with every project. Every major project will have its, its supporters and detractors, uh, but at the end of the day, governments, if they want to move communities forward, need to you know, bite the bullet, make decisions, and move forward. The interesting thing, though, the only thing that stayed consistent through all of that, Larry, is city council, because the governments have changed. I mean, you know, but still we were dragging this ball and chain behind us. Uh, and again, I, I remember very vividly the premier laughing at us, premier win giggling on my show because we were still arguing over the LRT after the great big check had been delivered. So, you know, again, I, I think that speaks volumes. Anyway, let's move on, Larry. What's next? What's the future? What happens now? I know you're going to say it's all up to Ford now to bring all these people together. Is that what you're well, saying? I, I, I don't know if it's if it's only Ford. I think I think you know all of the interested parties need to uh, need need to to talk to each other and and see what what the next step might be. If I were if I were organizing this, I would want to have a senior representative of the city. I would want to have a senior representative of the federal government. A senior representative of the provincial government. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're talking governments here, but we've also got this private entity called Leuna that's willing to pony up significant millions of dollars. Uh, they somehow should be brought into this mix as well. And I would sit down and, and have a discussion. Here's where we are. Do a, a quick analysis. Um, here's where we are. Here are the challenges. Here is how we can meet those challenges. Here is how each level of government uh, here's what they need to do at each level of government, both to fund and to make some decisions around the operation of this asset. And then once they come to that agreement, start the implementation of the plan that they've agreed to. It's not rocket science. It's basic organizational skills and political will. And everybody needs to you know, come to the table and, and develop some of that. Um, it seems that operating costs are a stumbling block. Where do you see that going? Well, and this is, you know, when you and I have had this discussion before, of course it's a stumbling block because operating costs means that uh, these are ongoing yearly costs that somebody is going to have to assume. Uh, as well as the cost, though, there's the other side, which is the, uh, the fare box, which will generate some income. Uh, along with other ways that uh, uh, public transit has of maybe uh, generating income as well, whether they're, you know, advertisements uh, and so on. But they need to talk about that. They need to talk about how are we going to handle this? What is What are those costs going to be? How are we going to handle them? And and come to some agreement on them. Uh, now, you know, this is, again, you're not reinventing the wheel. There are transit systems all over the world and certainly all over Canada that have a way of addressing this issue. Look at what they're doing and choose the best practice. Great points. Larry DeAnne with us, former mayor of Hamilton. Larry, always love chatting, especially when it's uh, LRT. Uh, and I think sooner or later, you and I will be dinging the bell one day. If, <laughs> although they may, they may be pushing us on and off the dang thing by then. Larry, okay. thanks so much. Be well. Thank you. You too. All right, uh, let's talk to Paul Johnson, Director of the Emergency Center, City of Hamilton, and get us a local update on where Hamilton is in all of this. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. Thanks for asking, uh, Scott, and it's great to be with you. Paul, we haven't chatted in a while. Here we are almost, uh, certainly over a year that this uh, touched down in, in Canada, but certainly a year since uh, March break of last year when things drastically changed for everybody. As you sit back and look at this one year later, what are your thoughts? Uh, my, my thoughts drift to, you know, the day before we, we, uh, we activated the Emergency Operations Center, my life was pretty much the same as it always was. In fact, I was I was off work uh, doing another thing that I really enjoy in life, and that's uh, being involved with officiating basketball and and literally in a gym in Burlington with five to seven hundred other people on the day before we activated the EOC. And now, of course, that's uh, been the longest and largest activation of our emergency operations center in our city's history. And so, what a difference that you know, even those few days made in March, and and mm. since then, it's. Uh, it's it's just been a constant uh, you know effort to keep on top of things and i guess where we sit now is uh, where where we hoped we'd get to when we started all this which is seeing some light at the end of this long tunnel and 
and really happy to see that the role of the vaccine is having uh, some impact in the ways that uh, we hoped it would, particularly in long-term care and retirement homes. And that gives us a glimpse to what we can expect as we get more and more doses into the community and more and more people vaccinated. So I uh, look back on a long run that no one saw coming and then uh, looking forward, it's going to take us some months to get out of this, but uh, you do see the, uh, the light at the end of this tunnel. So uh, obviously uh, we are where we are. As you mentioned, there is some optimism at the uh, light at the end of the tunnel here. How concerned are you where Hamilton is now, especially when it comes to variants? That was obviously the concern uh, a few weeks ago was would there be a third wave and how these variants would play in? How is Hamilton faring? Uh, well, it's, it's here, and, and it's uh, here in more than ones and twos, so the numbers keep going up. It is a reality of the cases that we see, and, and Hamilton is still seeing cases that are at a level that, that causes, uh, I know, our medical officer of health, Dr. Richardson, a great deal of concern, and it does for me, too, when I think about you know how we're, we're thinking of transitioning to uh, less restrictions at some point, and the time is just not now. I, we, we still have cases that are too high. We still have outbreaks uh, going on in a variety of locations, uh, including with some of our most vulnerable in terms of emergency shelters. And yes, the vaccine program's rolling out, but it still doesn't stop in its tracks the, the crises we're facing. So we're in for, uh, you know, a number of more weeks of, of really restricted, uh, uh, activities in our community. And that's because not enough people have been vaccinated yet. And then we're all, so we're doing two things right now, Scott. We're, we're worrying about the crisis at hand and making sure that we keep people safe. And then the second piece is how do we ramp up so that we can get more and more vaccine into the community? We know this is how we get to uh, those days where uh, you'll hear less of what you can't do and more of what you can do. You talked about getting the vaccine into the community. We know that uh, obviously with supply and such, we've been limited to long-term care and and, and some health care workers and such. Uh, now we're starting to hear, obviously Ontario consists of a whole pile of different regions and local health units which, which cater to their specific areas. We're starting to see now local health units start to move that vaccine out into uh, out into the general population and such. Where is Hamilton on that? Well, we've started to vaccinate in Hamilton, uh, the, uh, those who are 85 uh, and older. Uh, mm-hmm. We've started to do more health workers in our community. Uh, and, of course, this past weekend, as uh, mentioned, we started to roll out vaccine to another high-risk congregate setting, which is our emergency shelter. So we're starting to advance uh, that cause. Uh, the reality is we have... We have very limited resources in terms of the amount of vaccine coming in. It is, uh, as Dr. Richardson says, dribs and drabs at the moment. We expect that to move up, and that's why, uh, you know, public health is putting all of their energies into uh, making sure that their clinics and how we actually deliver the vaccines into the arms of Hamiltonians is ready to go. And uh, the Emergency Operations Centre is committed to helping with all of the logistics that are going to be necessary to do uh, vaccination at a level that we've never seen. So working together, we expect to continue to ramp up through the month of March. uh, And then into April, May and June, it's going to be an exponential growth in the amount of people that have access to the vaccine, the amount of vaccine that we'll be able to provide to Hamiltonians. So we're looking forward to that. You know, we've had some uh, some what we call pop-up clinics and mobile clinic work happening in the community. So we're testing out different ways of ensuring people can access vaccine. And I know the frustration right now is we don't have a lot of it, uh, but uh, this is good for us to continue to build our capacity to deliver the vaccine to the community because eventually uh, everyone who wants it will have access to it. Obviously, it's difficult, Paul, with uh, inconsistent supply to keep these sort of uh, systems running. You know, you you get a a supply in, you get up and running, and then it dries up and you wait for the next one as opposed to a constant garden hose of this stuff uh, coming in. Are you prepared and are you concerned if all of a sudden, boom, just a whole pile of shipments come in? Uh, we are preparing, and in fact, that's what a lot of our work is now, uh, is preparing for the ability to deliver in, in certain locations in this community thousands of doses a day, as opposed to having a few thousand doses a week, we'll be delivering thousands of doses a day. And so that work is happening right now. Uh, we're preparing that uh, by the mid to later part of March, we'll have uh, additional large-scale uh, clinics that would be uh, operational. And again, it's as you say, it's waiting for that day. Uh, when when it's uh, no longer uh, small amounts of vaccine coming by week, but uh, large numbers. 
Uh, the worst thing in the world would be for long periods of time that vaccines sits in fridges and freezers uh, unused. We want to make sure that those uh, those opportunities for people to come and get vaccinated are there. Uh, so we are doing all of that work right now, uh, but we're realistic that uh, this isn't going to change this week or next. So we've got a few weeks of going at uh, low volumes and doing what we can, and we expect to see that ramp up as we head to the end of March and into April. You talked about getting out into the community as the supply warrants it and starting with 85 plus. There's Hamiltonians out there that are wondering, how do I do this? How do I go about doing it? What's the process? What do you have to say to them? Well, right now we made the decision and I understand there's a lot of frustration about uh, um, the hotline at the moment because people can call our hotline and and get connected into the bookings that uh, can happen for 85 pluses and uh, you know, the volume is outstripping our capacity to respond, but the only other recourse we would have had would be to wait for the 15th of March when the provincial portal opens. And we wanted to get vaccine out. And I'm pleased to say that, that there's thousands of bookings that have been completed and people are getting that. So the short answer is some people will receive a call uh, from um, uh, from hospitals if they've been connected into clinics and hospitals in the last uh, period of time. Uh, they're going to get called directly and they're going to be booked in uh, via that. Uh, people can call in to our public health hotline. Uh, I know it may take a few chides. I know it's frustrating, but uh, persevere because, um, as I say, thousands of people are getting signed up for those vaccines. But again, this is not a chance to inquire when you'll get it as an 80-year-old, a 70-year-old, a 50-year-old. Uh, this is an opportunity for those who are 85 years of old, old or or uh, or later to, uh, uh, to to have access to the vaccine. So we need to keep the volumes down to just those who need it. And uh, I just ask for people's patience, but we decided we wanted to roll this out as fast as we could. Every day we wait, Scott, is a day that, uh, you know, potentially people have to be hospitalized uh, or worse from this virus. So we, we took the opportunity, as clunky as it is, to continue to get people signed up, even as we wait for the provincial portal uh, to go live on the uh, 15th of March. Website we can go to, Paul, to find out more about what the city's up to? Hamilton.ca backslash coronavirus. All the information is there, and you can link into our vaccine site. You can link into all the cases and information you need, all the closures, what you can do and can't do as we're in the red control zone. So best to go to that page first and then jump to where you need to, whether you're looking for vaccines or looking for other information. Uh, it's all there for you. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center, City of Hamilton, giving us an update on where Hamilton is. Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Pass on to those that are working hard. We all really appreciate what you're doing to keep us safe. Be well. I will, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.